Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there has been a lot of movement over the past week in the global vaccine distribution. I don't want to call it a race or a competition. I don't know what to call it, but there's a lot of movement. Let's start in the United States. The United States is finally getting into the game after months and months and months of wondering Will the United States start to distribute vaccines overseas? It was taking a lot of criticism from the international community that it had ceded and abandoned its role as a global public health leader to Russia and the Chinese. Now the United States government has announced that it will share, loan, donate, not quite sure what the framing of that is, 2.5 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccines with Mexico and 1.5 million doses will be going up to Canada. The United States has yet to approve AstraZeneca, so that's why it has that surplus available, and they've got about four to seven million doses that are sitting idle, so they are using that now to share. The United States is also uh, pledging $4 billion to COVAX, which is the Global Vaccine Alliance. And now that the country is expected to be fully vaccinated sometime this summer, maybe by the fall, Joe Biden says he wants it by July 4th. We all know that probably will take a little bit longer. Nonetheless, the administration is laying the groundwork to begin a really large-scale distribution campaign of vaccines to other countries, both through COVAX and obviously through some bilateral initiatives, as it did with Mexico and Canada. Now, part of the effort is, again, as I mentioned, for Washington to regain that traditional role as the leader in global public health, which... For a lot of people, they believe that it has been seated under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration. The Russians and the Chinese together have distributed more than half a billion doses to countries around the world. And this brings up a question as to whether or not the Chinese and the Russian vaccine distribution efforts are, have any political edge to them. The Chinese say there is no political agenda to its vaccine distribution efforts. But at least from the outside looking in, that seems, and it's just, maybe it's me, but it just seems a little hard to believe. Now, take a look at this map, and I'll share it in the show notes of the program today. The team at the Beijing-based consultancy Bridge Beijing produces a weekly Chinese COVID-19 tracking report that maps out where vaccines are actually going every week. It's a really invaluable tool. And it's very revealing when you think about the map as it's been laid out in geopolitical terms. So the map shows that Southeast Asia is nearly almost all covered. So vaccines have been shared almost all throughout the region, with the notable exception of here in Vietnam, which they are not going to take any Chinese vaccines. If we assign a geopolitical value to that, it makes a lot of sense that the Chinese are focusing on this region in particular with vaccines, because this region now is going to be the primary theater for the showdown for influence with the United States and the Quad, as we've, uh, we've talked about in previous shows. So then let's now move over to the next region, which is the Persian Gulf, where there's a similar pattern and a similar situation where most of the countries in the Gulf are covered. And by, and by the way, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi will be touring six countries in the Persian Gulf and heading over to Turkey as well this week. So that kind of coincides nicely with the discussion about vaccines. But again, in geopolitical terms, that makes sense 
A lot of sense, in fact, given that the Persian Gulf is now China's largest source of energy. Finally, there's South America, and South America is almost entirely covered in terms of vaccine distribution from the Chinese. And that, too, is very, very logical when you think about the fact that this region is, has booming trade with China. $300 billion a year for the past three years in a row. It's a key source of soybeans, iron ore, oil, and agricultural products. And also, more importantly now, more than any other region, South America is helping China to reduce its dependence on commodities from both the United States and Australia. So politically, it makes a lot of sense for China to be distributing vaccines to that region. Then we get to Africa, and the map is a lot lighter. That said, there's been a flurry of activity this week. Egypt is on the verge to begin manufacturing Sinovac vaccines under license. There have been new shipments arriving in Niger, in Benin, in Gabon, Zimbabwe, on top of deliveries already to Morocco, Algeria, and Botswana, among many others. But the quantities of vaccines going to Africa are still relatively low, in the low hundreds of thousands and the tens of thousands. And considering that most of these are two-dose vaccines, that really then you divide the number of vaccines in half, and that's the number of people that are going to be inoculated. So COBUS, as much as the Chinese would like us to believe and want to persuade people that politics aren't a factor in how vaccines are allocated, in my view, of course it plays a part because aid is inherently a political act. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree with you that aid is inherently a political act. And obviously, these kind of handouts also also have political valence. What's interesting for me is that, you know, that, that at the same time, there's been reports that China's domestic rollout has, 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 has hit some snags. And so it's, it's, it's very interesting to see that, to see this, this in action, you know, kind of rolling out to the rest of the world while the domestic situation isn't, uh, you, you know, kind of isn't 100% up to speed, which is a, a marked difference with the American approach. Um, you know, like a, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Thibault Nage, um, then like the ex-Secretary um, of State for Africa, um, Assistant Secretary of State for Africa. Um, and, you know, in, in that conversation, it, it it was clear that it would be political suicide for any American leader to to roll out in the rest of the world before the Americans have been, have been vaccinated. It's very interesting to see the opposite kind of dynamic happening in China. That's absolutely true. There's been about 76 million inoculations in China, but the urgency is less in China, obviously, because the infection rate is much lower and the crisis isn't anywhere near what it was in the United States. But you're right. There has been some glitches in the Chinese rollout. There is some domestic political pressure for the Chinese to start doing more vaccinations at home and maybe slow the distribution abroad, even though the Chinese government has said they are not going to slow that. Let's get two perspectives now on this vaccine question. We're going to get one perspective from China, one from Africa. From Beijing, we're joined by Rosie Wigmore, who's a policy analyst at the Beijing-based consultancy Development Reimagined, and she's also pursuing a graduate degree in international relations at Peking University. She recently wrote an article that was published in The Diplomat, that's the online news website that's absolutely indispensable, Five Reasons to Worry About the Chinese Vaccine Diplomacy Narrative. A very good afternoon to you, Rosie. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kobus. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I also want to thank uh, Hannah Ryder for the opportunity to be in The Diplomat and for the Development Reimagined team as a whole. They inspire me every single day. Fantastic. Yes, we're big fans of Hannah and DR and The Diplomat as well. Also joining us from Abuja in Nigeria is Ovigwe Ego Ego, who joins us on the line. Ovigwe is also an international policy analyst at Development Reimagined. That's Hannah Ryder's organization in Beijing, and he's also written quite a bit for us over the years, and including a piece that we recently published entitled, Will Chinese-Made COVID-19 Vaccines Find Acceptance in Nigeria? Ovigwe, good afternoon to you. Yeah, good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Kobus. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to have both of you to give us uh, what will hopefully be a very lively discussion about where we are in the vaccine distribution game. Rosie, let's start with you. You said right off the bat five reasons to worry about the Chinese vaccine diplomacy narrative. You mentioned that Chinese vaccine diplomacy can be seen as an extension of the Chinese debt trap diplomacy theory. And this is what you write that became a cornerstone of the Trump administration's Africa policy to deter African states from cooperating with China. 
Help us understand what the link is between the debt trap narrative and vaccine diplomacy. Yeah, so the debt trap uh, diplomacy narrative, it was used a lot by the Trump administration to deter African states for cooperating with, with China or accepting loans. My point in the article is really to point out that these these narratives, there is genuinely an, an agenda. And what I think it's important to recognize is that they are not they don't just exist in a vacuum. They do have real impacts on policymaking. So, uh, for example, the debt trap diplomacy narrative, one good example is, for example, with the uh, special drawing rights, the US government was quite against advocating for the special drawing rights. It didn't want um, a situation where African countries would be using these special drawing rights, the funds to repay, for example, Chinese loans because of a perception that China is entrapping African countries in debt. So I think it's important that we don't just take such narratives at face value and we we question and we question their implications. I feel that the Chinese vaccine diplomacy is similarly driven by an agenda. It's it's a very convenient narrative to point out China's China's flaws, discussions over the origins of, of the pandemic, etc., the the quality of Chinese vaccines. Ovikwe, can can you give us an idea of where Africa is standing in terms of the vaccines now? The you know the 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 impression that that we got from Eric's intro is that Africa is essentially being like dumped in the dust, you know, um, and we've seen some some um, reports that some African countries are thinking of of starting to manufacture, you know, at home, including including South Africa, which is apparently going to be manufacturing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Like where you know as a kind of a from a bird's eye. View, View, kind of where is the continent now in terms of vaccine rollout? The excuse range from lack of lack of fund funding to, to purchase uh, to purchase vaccines directly from manufacturers like Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and and the likes. But also there's vaccine availability as well as as a problem because lo- even Europe is complaining because you have this huge backlog that of uh, inadequate supply. All over the world, so it's it's global. So uh, the problem with Africa, the African issue is really really comes down to lack of manufacturing capacity. Because even if Europe, for instance, is complaining they they can't access you know uh, vaccines coming from from the US, which which they want, and other countries are also say complaining, the, at least Europe is producing. You know, you know we, the US is producing. Everybody, most people are producing ex, except you know. Uh, for for Africa, okay, maybe much of the global south really, but if you look at 55 African country, uh, econ- economies, we really are hoping that South Africa can produce, you know, Egypt can also produce, but uh, by and large, you find m- many of the countries that are already receiving, you know, these donations, you know, from from China, like Niger, Burkina Faso, and, and, and the likes, but we aren't seeing those coming from the U.S. As, as well, because being partners, we also expect that uh, if, we're, at least if we're not able to produce now in, in the immediate term, at least let's get those donations. But it's very understandable. Like, the shortage in supply is very is, is practical because if you have so many few manufacturing centers for these vaccines, of course, the people, the, the region of the world with less capacity to, produ- to purchase with hard cash would be back, would be at the back of the queue, as opposed to countries that are richer countries that can actually purchase, you know, these vaccines, and some of them like Canada have been purchasing over almost four times or even over four times their their population. So it really comes down to the lack of finance, first of all, to purchase right out of you know straight without any form of uh, nego- uh, loans or anything. If we had the money, of course, we would have been able to do that, and also lack of manufacturing capacity. So hopefully. If the Johnson and Johnson uh, manufacturing in South Africa comes online, and also the the uh, manufacturing of Sinovac in Egypt comes online, I think we would be able to make a lot of progress in terms of you know vaccine availability in the con- in the continent. That's a very interesting point because in the Americas, both Mexico and Brazil are manufacturing Chinese vaccines. Also here in Asia, Malaysia, India. Thailand, uh, in addition, obviously, to China and uh, and some of the more advanced economies, South Korea and Japan are all manufacturing. So you make a really interesting point that the ability to manufacture 
a vaccine is absolutely critical. And so far, that's what's missing in Africa. But again, well poised right now to manufacture in Egypt and also in South Africa. Let's go back to the earlier part of the discussion, uh, Rosie, where I talked about the political nature of, uh, of the distribution. I have a feeling that it is political because, again, as I mentioned, aid, all aid is inherently political because it comes from governments. Do you, in your kind of breakdown of the vaccine diplomacy narrative, what's your feeling in terms of how much politics plays a role in who's getting Chinese vaccines and who is not? No, I, I agree with you. The point of of the of the article is not to suggest that it's not political. I, I think all but I think the point to stress is that all countries are engaging in, in vaccine diplomacy or a form of vaccine diplomacy. But vaccine diplomacy is not inherently a negative thing. It's actually something that historically has been quite a positive thing. Um, there's two there's two different forms of vaccine diplomacy. One is it's a form of a branch of global health uh, that it's basically anything to do with the delivery of, of, of vaccines, for example, through um, the work of the Gavi Alliance or the WHO or the Gates Foundation, etc. Um, and then there's also vaccine science diplomacy, um, so collaborating on the development of vaccines. So my point is that yes, of course, countries are in, engaging. Why, why would you not engage in something like vaccine diplomacy? It's a very good opportunity, but it's not inherently negative. And I feel like it needs reframing because as Avigwe has pointed out, there, is, there are huge issues within the continent with manufacturing. This, the, the pandemic has highlighted um, the issue that, that Africa has, it imports 80% of its pharmaceutical products and there is, there is not enough capacity within the continent um, to be manufacturing first the COVID-19 vaccine, but also just in general, there, there is a lot more work to be done to reduce this reliance on imported pharmaceutical products. And this is why I think it's important to start reframing it so we can start looking at how it could be constructive again. In, in historically, vaccine diplomacy has been, it's enhanced things like cooperation and collaboration. So why don't we start looking at it from this angle? As we've seen, vaccine diplomacy is not a fixed narrative already in the press. We have India and its neighborly vaccine diplomacy, for example. And as you pointed out, the US is going for dose diplomacy. You know, it's, it's a malleable term and we could... We could mold it again. Rosie, following up on, on that, you know, it, it, South Africa and India tried, to, like, led, led a charge to try and, and loosen IP, like intellectual property restrictions on the vaccines um, in order to, to speed up the rollout. And, and this, this is collaboration that dates back to HIV um, struggles. Um, and so I was wondering how that was viewed in China. Was there any, was there any kind of sympathy for the idea of, of loosening IP, you know, or, you know, how, how we, because we, we saw a kind of a, you know, a, a kind of a blanket dismissal of this coming from from the global from the Western global north. The only thing I've heard so far is that China wants to follow the line in the WTO, and it has been in support of the IP waiver alongside India and South Africa. It was in support of that, but I don't know their exact policy or what is going to happen in the future. I have heard rumours amongst policymakers that maybe for now it should not be the priority we also need to focus on things like quality and distribution but um i can't say for sure i i don't know the the china party line i wish i did yeah i mean it's a tough yeah yeah it's a you would be uh you'd be very influential if you that exactly level of <laughs> but, uh, the, but what but what's interesting is when you hear health advocates in africa who will say, and I've been following this discussion quite a bit, that the IP waiver is absolutely critical. And, and the fact is, is that everybody is going after the European and the American companies on IP waivers. And in all of the discussion about IP waivers, I have not seen one of these health advocates and these activists talk about the Chinese vaccines on a health waiver. And nobody has been able to ask, answer this question for me. And, and again, I don't know, I mean, I don't think you guys know it either, but is that does... The Sinopharm or, or, or Sinovac, do they need a WTO IP waiver in order to release their own intellectual property? They own the IP 
just the same way that Google owns the IP for Android and it made it open source, there's no reason why, in my view, and I don't know, I'm not an expert in this, that Sinovac could just go, okay, this is open source. We're going to now make it available to countries to build their own manufacturing capacity. We're going to then provide funding and equipment for you to manufacture this. And to me, that would then live up to the standard that the Chinese have set through the idea that this is a global public good. I wrote last week or the week before that uh, the Chinese benchmark of making the vaccines a global public good failed to, to live up to that standard simply because, A, they have not made it available to the IP. Number two, their donation to COVAX at just 10 million doses is really a pittance compared to what other major powers have, have given, namely the United States at $4 billion. And then when we see some of the information coming out, and this is Ovigwe, I'd like to get your take on this, we haven't seen the details of how much Chinese vaccines actually cost when they are sold. But it was revealed that in Senegal, they are charging $19 a dose. And then in Hungary, it came out to $37 a dose. So when we look at that as a benchmark for the, say, let's say the, 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 the COVAX donation of 10 million doses at $19 a dose, that's $190 million donation to COVAX, okay? That for a $14, $15 trillion economy is a pittance. So I just, I don't know. I mean, Ovigwe, do you see the rhetoric living up to the hype and the policy living up to the hype of all the vaccine donations in Africa, yet the, the quantities of vaccines that are actually landing in Africa are not that large? 100,000 here, 200,000 there, 300,000 there, and so forth. So do you believe from your vantage point in Abuja that the Chinese are living up to the standard that they set for themselves as making vaccines available to the poorest countries as a global public good? Yeah, I think I think it's it's important to start with Covax. Let's start let's start with Covax first. Well, now with Co with Covax, the you would need your vaccines to go through the WHO regulatory process, and then you can you can ask you know. Uh, support the pool of vaccines by making donations, right? So if the Moderna, for instance, uh, uh, Pfizer and all the other uh, AstraZeneca, they were ahead with, uh, of, the, of Sinopharm, for instance, in, in providing their vaccines to go through the WHO regulatory process. So that may have slowed, and I believe that was the reason why you'd see that the Chinese, uh, Chinese vaccine hasn't really been a major uh, impute or Sinopharm vaccine hasn't been a major impute in, in the COVAX, the COVAX program because of the regulatory process. But be that as it may, the when it comes to direct bilateral donations, it is definitely obvious that in Africa, there is a long way to go to match up uh, don donations with expectations, right? Because the, the, the major countries suffering from uh, COVID-19, let's look for instance, South Africa. South Africa is one of the closest countries, you know, to, to China, whether we're looking at it bilaterally or even looking at, you know, uh, party leader, party to party, you know, cooperation and also foreign policy, you know, alignment along the line of BRICS and all of those, you know, South-South cooperation themes, right? And it is almost shocking to, to see that we're not seeing that you know real heavy collaboration when it comes to you know vaccine uh, even production i was even expecting that you know sinopharm would probably even land in south africa f faster than you know in in egypt and they can even use that uh, BRICS format as a way to promote you know uh, deep the BRICS itself and also production in uh, to show that BRICS is really an emerging platform for collaboration among the countries because you have three vaccine you know uh, producing economies in BRICS you know Russia China and India and India has a huge you know uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing base in the continent in the continent there are several African countries where is Indian you know pharmaceutical companies you know privately held pharmaceutical companies that are you know, uh, top uh, top pro producers of drugs and vaccines and all of that. So, if you look at the the, the rhetoric, yes, it's very easy to see that there there's a lot of gaps, right? But whether it's from co uh, and for Covax, you can have an explanation for that. But bilaterally, I think it all comes down to, you know, uh, I would say 
African countries, you know, not having it as bad as some countries, but at the same time, you don't really have to, because that's the excuse the U.S. is using. We have it really bad. So let's focus on ourselves, you know, get, get this vaccine rollout, vaccinate a significant amount of the population before, you know, we push out. But the, the Chinese side doesn't have it as bad as the U.S., so they went out first. But in going out first, you can really see it's not particularly, uh, it's not particularly, the presence is not particularly strong, you know, in, in Africa. And perhaps the excuse would be Africa doesn't have it as bad as maybe Southeast, uh, uh, South America. But eh, not quite. I think it's also we do need to not just put so much emphasis on what China should be doing as well in terms of manufacturing. I, I do believe that P. Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson are already based as well in South Africa. So it's also surprising on that side that there hasn't. I, I know a deal has been signed with Johnson and Johnson, but it's yeah. Johnson and Johnson is going to start manufacturing in South Africa, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah, but P. Pfizer as well, and so I think that we should also be looking at other players as well, and 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 their ability to start manufacturing within the continent as well. The problem with the Pfizer vaccine, though, is that it is really not well suited at all for developing countries, given the the sub-zero cold chain that needs to be maintained. Whereas the Johnson and Johnson, like the CanSino also don't need their single shot. They don't need the sub-zero cold chain. So in that sense, I think Johnson & Johnson has a lot of potential in Africa. Kobus, let's, get, let's go to you very quickly here. As somebody in Johannesburg, Ovigwe pointed out that he is surprised that there wasn't closer cooperation and coordination between China and South Africa on vaccines. What's your take on that? Yeah, it was also interesting for me. I saw that there, there is talks now about about getting the one of the Chinese um, vaccines certified by by South African medical authorities, but it struck me that it's actually quite late in the process for for that to happen. Um, I, I was intrigued by this, and I was wondering, um, and I actually like to get Ovigwe's take on this from Nigerian perspective as well. I was wondering whether the ruling party in South Africa was was worried about backlashes from South Africa about vac- about Western versus Chinese vaccines. Um, you know, because because it was interesting for me that the South African government, despite picking all these fights with, with these Western companies, they've so far largely opted for working with these Western companies. Um, you know, so so South Africa had a big um, a big consignment of AstraZeneca um, coming in from, from India actually, um, which was then which they then ended up having to send to other African countries because because of the variant in South Africa that, that that rendered that vaccine largely useless. Um, so you know, so so I was, uh, there seems to be maybe some kind of like domestic political issues kind of involved here. But uh, but my read on it isn't isn't very clear. Ovigwe, did you see? Uh, did you are you picking up any kind of like prejudices or like kind of you know biases against Chinese vaccines? as kind of like uh, along a kind of a narrative of oh Chinese made stuff is is low quality in Nigeria. I, I, I think that that might be playing into parts in, partly into South Africa. Well, for for Nigeria, no, because if there if there's any concern from from Nigerian perspective about vaccines, it will actually be prejudiced against Western vaccines because we've had episodes of real failed trials that led to deaths, you know, in Kano for some an- antibiotic vaccines, we, and this is going back all the way to the 90s, even sometime in, in 2000s as well. We had you know cases uh, with Pfizer in particular. You know, in northern Nigeria, Kano and, and some other states that did trials and and let was it was it was a debacle, right? So we don't have that that experience with you know with Chinese pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals, if anything, we've been seeing Chinese pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical products, drugs, you know, uh, IVs and all of that has has been in, in circulation and really hasn't been any ma- major issue. However. The perception, the perception of you know of uh, Chinese vaccine in, in Nigeria, talk speaking to people in civil society that I interviewed for the, the article that was published uh, some time ago, it was a bit mixed. What you will find on the government side is they don't really care where the vaccine is coming from, provided it has been put through a regulatory process that is accepted. So whether it's WHO or the African CDC is having has its own you know, uh, regulatory process to look through the vaccines or even doing a, a, a local, like we did with the Russian vaccine. Re- recall last year we received virus of Russian vaccines to do trials. So 
if you put out a Sputnik 5 vaccine in Nigeria, for instance, the government is not going to have any issues with it because we've, we've participated in stage three for that particular vaccine. Now, with the Chinese, with, so with Chinese vaccines, it's really a case of does it work or does it not work? And if it does, then great, let's, you know, let's have, have it. So we were, the, one of the things I also re re realized in talking to officials as well, two or three actually I, I spoke with is, there was expectation that up following Wangi's uh, visit, there will be an announcement of a very clear approach as to how Nigeria and China would cooperate, you know, for, for vaccination, vaccinating in the Nigerian population. So even if it's not donation, or at least let's, let's see something, you know, major in terms of, you know, uh, manufacturing it might not be in Nigeria, but in, in some other African African country. But that wasn't uh, really there. But uh, as far as the general public and people I've spoken to would tell you, they really they, they, there was particularly one one uh, lady Igwe Omole. She worked with uh, she had a project on uh, COVID-19 mitigating strategies of all the impact security and all of the, those perceptions of COVID-19 in six northern states, right? And I was talking to her like, yeah, could you just ask the network you set up regarding the perception of Chinese vaccines? And really, they were like, they, they don't have any issues. So what about you know, Western vaccines? Aha, that, that they have issues with because of the antecedent. So the history. So most of the time, people tend to operate from their experience. So the experience of Chinese vaccine is not bad in Nigeria, but for people like Pfizer, it's bad. So that is always going to affect the psyche and their and their openness. So politically, no issue whatsoever. Uh, but in civil society, there you might start to find questions around, you know, vaccines coming from Pfizer, but not really, you know, in Chinese vaccines. That is so fascinating because that is definitely not a theme that you pick up in the international news coverage of this issue. You only hear about the fact that the Chinese have not released their phase three clinical trial data for, for vaccines, so therefore there's doubts. You hear a lot of the skepticism about the Chinese vaccines, and we certainly don't hear a lot of skepticism, if any, about Pfizer, Moderna, and some of the Western vaccines. So very, very interesting on that. Uh, Rosie, let's you know, let's shift the the conversation a little bit because up until now it's been slightly skeptical, cynical, questioning the the Chinese vaccine approach on things. What are the conversations that you're having on campus at Peking University with your classmates, with some of your professors about China's vaccine distribution efforts overseas? What's their take on this issue? We haven't been discussing it much on on campus. If I'm honest, I think perhaps because of the situation is we feel quite removed from the situation within China. It's, it's it's a bit of a bubble, if I'm honest, because we haven't had cases for so long and the situation feels very distant. Um, I haven't even contemplated the thought of the taking the Chinese vaccine or um, and I think that's just generally the mood with uh, people that I'm surrounded by. But um, in the broader picture, I think China is, again, similar to the de uh, debt trap diplomacy narrative, quite frustrated um, by this narrative. And um, it has been also admittedly uh, taking part in, 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 in the narrative of uh, developing its own narratives against um, European countries in the USA. It's, we do need to also admit that that has happened. Um, so also pointing out that some some vaccines are also not good quality, for example, AstraZeneca, etc. Maybe from from both of you, um, what what are what are your kind of expectations for how this kind of global vaccine rollout is going to happen from now on? You know, particularly what what kind of timelines do you think we're looking at um, in terms of of getting getting kind of most of Africa vaccinated? Um, you know, maybe I, I should start with Uvigwe and then Rosie. You can you can kind of contribute if you want. So for me, my expectation is to see more manufacturing domiciled in Africa. The African CDC has come out to say 
you know, we have about five African countries that can produce Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, South Africa, Senegal, which is beautiful because you have, you do have like South Africa, you know, servicing maybe Southern African countries. Senegal can, of course, cover West Africa and then, you know, Egypt down all the way. Okay, maybe not Ethiopia because of the larger political issues, right? But you can have all of these African countries, they are really spread out. And given that they are, they are, they are, they are spread out in, in that way, if we really find you know, it, it, uh, that cooperation between manufacturing, vaccine manufacturing companies, whether they are state-owned, private, really doesn't matter, provided the vaccine is effective and really fits the context. And to be frank, uh, can't say no, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, these are really the vaccines that we really should be uh, should be put punching towards because they really fit the needs of the of the population and the in inadequacies and they're not going of structural inadequacies rather are not really going to affect their distribution and and, and production. So it was quite uh, disheartening when you know the US, you know, European Union, and all of these countries were not supportive of waiving IP because it's it's really how you can solve a pandemic. In the middle of, of a pandemic, there's one thing that you really expect. It and it's it's not it's not even charity. It's even in the interest of these countries to support waving waving the IP because if if they want international trade and if they want inter, uh, international travel to resume, then Africa has to be protected or immunized against COVID nineteen vac COVID nineteen because when when they fully get immunization, and then they start traveling back, you know, traveling all over the world again, and if the African if if the vac if the virus is still running wild here, maybe we'll have like three, four, five other different uh, mutant uh, uh, strains that might that might even be, uh, even come go back to Europe, and then you are going to have this whole process repeat itself all over again. So if there's one message that WHO has gotten right and many other countries have re-emphasized is the fact that everyone has to come out of this for anyone to you know to be to be safe. And that is why that ma vaccine manufacturing is so important. But it's it's so, uh, it's so politicized and I would say it's the politics of you know vaccination and all of this you know competition between you know, so-called great powers, it's really hindering it because in a sensible, it's a sensible world, the natural thing, the next logical step is to see how you can distribute manufacturing across the entire continent. Because if you have manufacturing distributed, the issue of vaccine diplomacy is not going to even come up at all. If everybody can manufacture, or at least regional countries can manufacture for their neighbors, then we won't be looking out to AstraZeneca, or sorry, the UK or China or the US or the European Union to supply us vaccines in the first place. So they are the ones creating the avenue for vaccine diplomacy by not letting African countries and not just African countries, the global south, have access to producing vaccines for themselves. So the only way, Ovigwe, that you think that you're suggesting that this deficit can be closed between the global south and the global north is through manufacturing and the IP waiver. That's the way. That's not the only way, but that's the most effective and efficient way. Uh, Rosie, let's get your look ahead. Where do you see the Chinese vaccine distribution drive going in the next, say, six to 12 months? What do you think we can expect based on your research? Well, as Avigo pointed out before with the WHO regulations, um, things may have been a little bit slower on the Chinese side as they are a little bit uh, unused to this process, maybe not as much as, um, say, Western countries. So as they've come to the WHO a little bit low, things are late, things are still in process. So there is a chance that things, there will be more contributions um, in, in the future through COVAX rather than bilaterally. Um, but also in the future, as Vigway said, I, I, I hope as also China's policy of um, becoming the, the main pharmaceutical player within 10 years and shifting its focus from manufacturing um, towards research and development. Um, China has already, it's, it's been a latecomer to the uh, manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in Africa, but it has, it's a growing player. 
And um, I'm hoping that in the future, as it focuses more on research and development, shifts away from manufacturing, this could be a good opportunity for China to start increasing the amount of pharmaceuticals that it is manufacturing um, within Africa. Um, so that is what I ho I hope for the future. There there is there's been a good start. There is still a um there is a lot of issues still, um, within the continent. Um, but I think one of the issues has been that the 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 market has not been seen as big enough for a lot of uh, Chinese pharmaceutical players when they have such a large domestic market. But I think. Um, given the scale of the pandemic, that it's um, it, it's emphasised that there there will be more of a a, a market and more of a need um, to start manufacturing urgently, um, not just talking about it and developing initiatives because there has been many initiatives within Africa to develop manufacturing um, capabilities and it's not it's. It, Although there are some success stories, unfortunately, um, there's there's not as many success stories as they could be. They 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 are the anomaly. So, I'm I'm hoping that the pandemic will give the drive to really 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 start pushing for more manufacturing and reducing um, this reliance on importing more expensive marked up pharmaceutical products. And if one country can scale up its production, it is definitely China. So I would exactly. expect that in the next six to nine months that the, the production, the factories are going to be just cranking the stuff out. There's probably not going to be a supply problem next year at this time. That's not going to be the issue. Might be a distribution issue to many remote areas and, and developing countries. But supply, the shortages we have today will probably be resolved as the Chinese, Indians, Europeans, Americans, and hopefully, hopefully a Vigway even in Egypt, hopefully Nigeria and South Africa will have factories cranking this stuff out. So that is a nice, optimistic way for us to leave our conversation. I want to thank you both for taking the time to join us. The article number one is five reasons to worry about the Chinese vaccine diplomacy narrative. It was written by Rosie Wigmore, who's a policy analyst at the Beijing-based consultancy Development Reimagined. Thank you so much, Rosie, for joining us. Where if, can people find you if they want to follow what you're reading and writing these days and get in touch? You can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at uh, Rosie Wigmore. Wonderful. And also, there's a great article on our website at thechinaafricaproject.com. Will Chinese-made COVID-19 vaccines find acceptance in Nigeria? Really insightful analysis from Ovigwe Egu Egu. Ovigwe, you are very active on Twitter. What's the handle for everybody to look you up? So it's at Ovigwe Egu Egu. Wonderful. And Ovigwe also is a policy analyst at Development Reimagined. Once again, a very big thank you to both of you for sharing your insights on this incredibly complicated issue. And we're looking forward to having you back to give us an update in a few months. Th yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Kobus, Rosie and Ovigwe brought a lot of nuance to the discussion that has in many ways been boiled down to its most crude simplistic narratives as it's been battling out between the United States, Europe, China. It's been mixed in with all the broader tensions. And, and I think the nuance that we heard from, from Uvigwe about how, you know, Nigerians, they just want this done. And, and again, it's that practicality of the approach, which is so typical that we hear over and over and over again about the appeal of the Chinese offer in Africa. Just get it done. So while at the same time I was a little bit critical of the Chinese approach in Africa on vaccines, given the fact that I don't think the quantities lived up to the expectation that they set for themselves about making this a global public good. They also had a lot of fanfare about their deal with Tsainia, which is the logistics division of Alibaba and Ethiopian Airlines. We really haven't seen the fruits of that play out in the, you know, quite the same way that we expected, given what the Chinese did through the Jack Ma Foundation and the distribution of PPE, where they gave to every country on the continent, even Iswatini, and given the fact that Iswatini you know, recognizes Taiwan, they still gave PPE to Iswatini. But yet with vaccines, it didn't meet that expectation. Nonetheless, the vaccines that they've given have been significantly more than have come from other sources. And that is just an, un, you know, just an inalienable good. That is an amazing thing. It just hasn't met the expectations. And once again, the Chinese are very, very poor in communicating 
and managing those expectations. So that's been, I think, one of the reasons why there's been some frustration uh, from outsiders looking in and also among some African stakeholders. Yeah, like I, I, I agree with you. Um, some communication would definitely have helped. Um, I think, you know, as a whole, the 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 feeling that, that I pick up, um, you know, among African stakeholders is this worry that, that Africa is just kind of being forgotten about. Um, and, you know, and, and with it, the, the, the point that, that Uvigwe made that, that as long as Africa remains unvaccinated, the, the the vaccinated world is gonna is will remain um, vulnerable to new variants of the virus, so it really is in everyone's you know in in everyone's um, favor to to try and get this done very quickly. Um, and it'll be interesting to see you know kind of in South Africa for, for, from my perspective particularly to see you know kind of whether they'll be stepping closer to Chinese partners to try and just get get more doses in in people's arms. Um, you know, I, I I was wondering what what you what you thought of the the fact that this kind of you know we we've we've made fun of the of this kind of narrative of like like OMG vaccine diplomacy you know the the way that it's it's kind of framed in in Western media. Um, but you know, where do you think that narrative comes from? Where would, where do you think this this kind of like like kind of moral panic about China kind of increasing its 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 soft power in the global south? You know, like where where, where does that lie? It's interesting because I've over the past six or seven months, I've been interviewed by a number of U.S. and European media outlets, and they've all kind of come with the question of, well, isn't China using vaccines to promote its own political objectives? And to pick up on what Rosie said, I, I, I was like, well, yes, of course they are. They'd be stupid if they didn't. This is a, a very important soft power tool. And what's, what's insidious about that question, though, is the implication that in the U.S. and Europe, they don't use aid for political purposes. That is the insinuation about that question, that the Chinese are using vaccines and aid to further a political objective. But, you know, we Americans and Europeans, no, we don't do that. And that is just stupid beyond all imagination, because, as I said, aid is inherently a political act. Whether it's domestic politics that sends John Deere tractors to to Africa, even though there's no spare parts, even though there's no maintenance or, you know, they can't do anything with them after they break, or it's sending types of wheat that can't be processed in African uh, flour companies because it's sold in Iowa and that congressional delegation wants to find, you know, outlets for surplus wheat. I'm making this up, but this is basically part of the political process of aid, but it is inherently a political process. And the idea that American and, US and European aid is altruistic and the Chinese are somehow scheming is, to me, a rather bogus proposition right from the start. What's interesting, though, is that if we put the vaccines in the broader context of everything else that's happened over the past year, let's kind of think about this, how the DSSI from the G20 uh, was bare bones, minimalistic, the least that you could possibly do. We've talked about that on a number of occasions. The U.S. and Europe really made little to no effort on debt sustainability in Africa. And the United States was very, very slow moving on this. We have not seen movement in the state of New York legislature to relax some of the fiduciary laws on private creditors, also in the U.K. as well. There's been no movement on that. Private creditors are still demanding 100% of their money back, no debt, forgiveness, relief, or any softening on that front. The United States was the biggest impediment to the special drawing rights so in, in that African stakeholders desperately wanted in order to put some liquidity into the markets. And then we have the vaccines, where they hoarded the vaccines. Again, we've called this, and I've called this, a moral shame on the United States and Europe for a number of different reasons. Okay, take all of that, okay, and yet a new survey came out about four weeks ago by the French Council of Investors in Africa, which is a private business group of 12 nations in uh, Arabic-speaking and French-speaking countries, Chinese favorability went down nine points, and the United States and Germany went up. And I, I'm just a little bit incredulous about all of that, even though the Chinese have been doing more on debt forgiveness and sustainability issues in, in Africa today. They've been done more on vaccines, but yet German and, and U.S., Popularity, at least in these 12 nations served by, surveyed by, by the French Council of Investors in Africa, went up. 
it's kind of perplexing to me, uh, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of it's uh, it's very interesting. Um, I mean, the durability of American soft power is impressive. I have to say, yeah, that. there's there's that. You know, at, at the same time, I wonder if it also comes from just kind of low expectations. Um, you know, because because my my, my you know my, my reaction when I saw that that all of the countries who voted against the the IP relaxation were all Western countries was well that's guns you know like that that's that's always how the west is you know it, like the west always takes its own drug companies more seriously than it takes the the people who are, who are in need of drugs you know that that's that's guns um so i wonder if if it's just a situation that people just kind of just have already factored in this kind of relationship with the global south from the west yeah i mean it's just perplexing i mean again i'm not I, I'm not a, you know, I think the Chinese have, have had a lot of problems in Africa. I think they get a bad rap for a lot of things, some of it justified, some of it not justified. But I also at the same time think that some of the Europeans and the Americans get the benefit of the doubt when it's not deserved either. And in this case, I think it's not deserved over the past year because what they've done on vaccines, debt, on any number of issues, SDRs, your, the IP waivers, uh, has not been good for Africa. And they have not been a friend to Africa in the least, and despite all the rhetoric. But nonetheless, that was just, uh, I thought, super interesting. Let's close our discussion on looking forward. Where do you see this going? The question that I put to Ovigwe and to Rosie about kind of the six and 12-month forecast here in Vietnam they're talking about uh, fourth quarter of this year, so towards the end of the year, getting vaccines for the mass part of the population, but really into 2022. And, and, and like by the time we're being told that midsummer next year is when we're going to get it. Again, a developing country, much in a very similar profile as you have in Africa. What are you being told about what's ahead and, and kind of wh how are you seeing this play out in the next six to 12 months? The South African government has been relatively quiet about this. Um, so we don't have a full a full kind of rollout schedule yet. I've seen mentioned where I think they're, they're already starting to roll out for, for essential workers. Um, and, I, you know, I, I saw mentioned by the, the possibility of, of a wider rollout, particularly for people with comorbidities um, around the third quarter of this year. Um, but it's you know kind of that that's the thing with South Africa. It's like people people are you know kind of are, are kind of angrily waiting. You know people are always angrily waiting on the South African government. So you know because so, so you know it, it, that, that schedule might change. But but I think they're also aware that they that that it's it's a political kind of thing in South Africa, and that any kind of delay will be immediately be kind of characterized like oh there's this failing government. You know so so I think there is a lot of pressure on them. But then you know in South Africa there's a lot of pressure on them on a lot of issues, and they don't tend to not respond to that pressure. So we'll see. Well, we have been covering the Chinese vaccine distribution drive around the world, not just in Africa, but throughout the global south. And in part because what we try and do is show that broader context about where the vaccines are going and then trying to put some analysis on top of why. So Brazil is a main part. UAE is also a main destination. And, and again, it just really puts what's going on in Africa in a context. Uh, if you are working in government, nonprofit, in journalism, in research, and you follow China Africa, I really recommend that you try out our daily email newsletter. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers. $15 a month for everybody else. You can cancel at any time. There's no obligation. We also would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, you can reach me at eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. You can also reach Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another show. For Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>